Good morning, boys. So glad to see you today. Hope you all have had a good week so far. A good time of the year, isn't it? we got the Masters. Good morning. Masters, baseball season, March Madness, good time to be alive. Well, so good uh, uh, to be here with you today. Uh, go ahead and uh, flip open to First uh, John chapter 5, starting at uh, verse 13. Uh, we're coming to the uh, climactic finish of John's letter for us, and it is, uh, it's finishing in high fashion. Uh, we started the, the close of his book last week with Todd, and, and we're going to close it out here today. Um, now, as we know, uh, John's purpose uh, for this whole letter, uh, what he's been writing to us, is so that we would know what true faith is. And we know the reason that he's, he's writing to tell us these things, because there were false teachers back then, and they were teaching false gospels, false Jesuses, and it was confusing everybody. So John comes in to teach what true saving faith is, and in doing so, uh, he gives us three different tests. Uh, true faith, or true uh, belief, rather. Uh, what is true obedience and what is true love? And in so those things is that we see the manifestation of what a true and saving faith is. And so we're coming to the end of this chapter and he's wrapping all of this teaching up, all these different tests, and he's putting a bow on it. And in doing so, he, he wants us to know something that has an incredible benefit and result and effect in our lives as uh, Christian men. And it's this, a robust assurance of faith a robust assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ. Has anybody in here ever doubted their salvation before? Oh yeah, we all have. John sets out to assure us of our salvation in Christ. I remember when I was a college pastor, um, college pastors in our ministry, we would take hundreds of our students from different campuses down to Florida for you know, like a 10-week retreat. And we would spend 10 solid weeks studying God's Word and training in righteousness and and every year, every summer, there would be one lesson where we would teach on biblical manhood. You know, we have a whole bunch of freshmen and college students that are transitioning out of adolescence and becoming adults. And to bless them, we went on to teach on what it means to be a biblical man. And every year, there'd be one principle that we would teach in those sessions. And it's this, biblical men, as we see it in the Bible, we had character studies, are those who reject passivity and accept responsibility. You know, and so we say, guys, it is time for you then to, to stop accepting passivity. You know, it's no longer time for you to spend 24 hours on end before the Nintendo screen. Okay, it is time to take initiative in your life, in your relationships. It's time for you to be responsible, to own your faith, and to actually live out that faith. What does it, be, uh, what does it mean to be a man, a Christian man? Now, every single one of us had trouble and have trouble transitioning out of adolescence into adulthood. But this one particular summer, I just remember, we had a group of students who, who particularly had a hard time with this. I mean, for real, I remember one of my, my guys, someone who I really loved, I mean, he had a, a more intimate relationship with Jack Bauer than he did any other human being. Right? It's like, friend, you are pasty. You need to get out of your dorm room. All right, There are attractive co-eds out there. They're a lot prettier than Kiefer Sutherland. Come on, let's, let's engage folks, right? And uh, we just had a really hard time understanding why these folks and these students had a hard time taking initiative and becoming responsible. And as we peeled back the layers, we came to find out that they were rejecting responsibility, accepting passivity, because in their hearts they were struggling with insecurity. 
lot of these students um, came from broken homes or did not have a father who was around that much. They didn't have any positive influences in their life. And they were passive in adulthood. They struggled with adulthood because they did not have someone to tell them truth, to tell them what it meant to be an adult. They didn't know. And because of that, they were insecure. And because they were insecure, they were passive. It's not all unlike a freshman football player. Um, some of us you know, like to go to the spring games of our favorite college team. And whenever you're in the stands, you're, you're quick to be able to pick out who the freshmen are, right? Because those freshmen, they don't know the plays yet. And out there when they're playing live ball, they're thinking through what they're supposed to do. And when they're thinking through what they're supposed to do, they're not reacting. They're thinking through things, which makes them passive. And friends, what happens when a player is passive out on the field? They get their heads knocked off, right? Because they're thinking about everything and they're, and they're timid and they just get blown up out there on the football field. And that's a principle. When we are insecure, we become passive. And when we become passive, we begin to struggle and I bring that up because I'm convinced that as Christians, Christian men, regardless of your age, the reason that we struggle in our faith, the reason that we're allured by the temptations of this world, the reason that we can become timid rather than bold in our faith is because down deep in our hearts, we struggle with insecurity over our salvation. And every single one of us do struggle with that. And Paul, or rather John, knew that. And I think that's what he believed as well. Because he had a church filled with Christians that had their faith completely kamikazed by false teachers. They're saying, Christians, do you really think you know who Jesus is? Let me tell you, you don't. Do you really know what it means to be saved? Let me tell you, you don't. And so these Christians began doubting themselves. They were thinking to themselves, do we really know the true and living God? Are, are we really saved? And, that became, and because of that, they began struggling in their faith mightily. They became timid in their faith. And isn't it true for so many Christians today that because of the rise of, of continued rise of liberal Christianity, anti-evangelicalism, a thousand different news sources out there telling you what is true and what is not true, it is easy for us to begin to become insecure of what we know to be true. Do we really know Jesus? Do we really know what it means to be a Christian? Am I really living out the faith? And we become insecure. And so what John is doing here, he enters into our lives and he says, brothers, let me tell you what true truth is. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what Jesus Christ has done. And this is particularly what he's done for you. And it's when you cultivate that assurance of your salvation that we become confident in our confession. We're able to stand firm against the dangers of this world and whatever this world throws at you. And we become bold in our mission of spreading the kingdom of Jesus Christ in all of the world. And that is John's intentions for us. And and that's his intentions for his original readers and, and especially for us this morning. But before we dive in here to talk about the benefits of this assurance of faith and assurance of our salvation, let us first go to our God in prayer. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for gathering us um, as brothers, your children, brothers to Christ, brothers to each other. And Father, I pray that as John prayed a little while ago, that you would fixate our eyes upon Christ. That, Father, you confirm for us by your Spirit that we are your children. And that you would well up within our hearts a deep abiding confidence of our salvation. And in that confidence, Father, you would propel us to a life lived boldly and joyfully for you. Speak to us, O Lord, for your servants listen. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, John chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 13. 
He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. This is the word of the Lord. There's four things uh, that we're going to look at, and hopefully we'll get through them all. The first one, we've already spilled the beans. John's purpose in this is for Christians to enjoy the fullness of their salvation. For them to enjoy the full assurance of their salvation. And we see right there in verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is telling us for the five chapters that we have studied so far, when you boil it all down, his purpose is the promotion for your assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ, that you might know that you truly do know God and that you truly are saved by God. You remember at the end of uh, Todd's passage last week in verses 10 through 12, John starts talking to us about eternal life. And we saw that eternal life is not a prize for you to be won, to be achieved or earned, but it is a gift for you to be received by faith. It is a gift that you can enjoy fully in the time to come, but it's also a gift that we can enjoy now. And it's completely wrapped up in having faith in Jesus Christ as he is presented in scriptures, not by the false teachers, but as he is presented in the scriptures. And if you have faith in this Jesus Christ, you can know, Christians, that you have eternal life. Life. That is his purpose. Now I'm telling you, for me, that is a surefire testimony that the word, that scripture is in fact the word of God and that God is good. I cannot tell you how many Christians in my short career that I've had to counsel who have struggled on some level or another about their assurances of salvation. I can't tell you how many times that I've struggled with that myself throughout my life as a Christian. We ask those questions, do I really know Jesus? Have I really believed the right things? Am I really saved? How do I know that I'm truly saved? And we all struggle with that. We all have those questions, don't we? Some of us struggle with those things mightily, and it zaps the joy of your faith from you. But friends, this is surefire testimony then that scriptures is the word of God because he spends so much time trying to convince you that you are saved in Christ. Because, because think about this. How, how could it be possible that uninspired men not carried along by the Holy Spirit that lived 2,000, 3,500 years ago could have possibly have known that we would struggle with our assurances of salvation today? The answer is they couldn't. <laughs> they do not have that foresight. It's impossibility. But God in his wisdom and grace, who is the true author of Scripture, did inspire those men. And he did carry them along by the Holy Spirit to get them to write what he wanted them to write because he knew his children would struggle with their insecurity of salvation. Friends, how cool is this? Do you understand 
that God purposed John to write what he did in chapter 5, verse 13 of his first epistle before the foundation of the world because he knew that in 2017, there'd be 300 some odd men on the corner of Poplar and Goodlett eating bacon together in Second Presbyterian Church studying the Bible who would struggle with their assurances of salvation. That's amazing. 513 is testimony that God's word is in fact God's word and that he is good. So this is John's purpose, that we would have a robust assurance of our salvation. But really quick, I want us to understand that this is just one peg of his fourfold strategy in all of his writings. In fact, if you take 1 John and the Gospel of John together, you'll see this fourfold strategy clear as day. I just want to go over it with you real quick because I do think it will bless you in your future study of John's writings. His first peg in his fourfold strategy is that we would hear truth, that you would know truth. And we see this in the first chapter of this epistle in the first three verses. John tells us that he and the other apostles, the other disciples, they they heard things and they saw things in Christ. And they knew what he told us in, in the beginnings of his gospel account, that Jesus is the incarnate word, that in him is the light and life of men. And so he says that Jesus, in him, there is eternal life. Now, that's a big deal. And so John says, I can't sit on this. And so in verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 John, he says, me and the other guys, the other apostles, we set out to proclaim the truth that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. He wants us to know what is up. And so that is the purpose. Number one, that we would actually know truth, that we would understand the light of the world that Christ has brought into the world. Secondly, his second purpose, peg of his fourfold strategy is that we would believe truth. Not just that we would know it, but that we would actually believe it. If you go to the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 30, there's this heading for us hard-headed folks that says, this is the purpose of the gospel. (laughs) That's what it says. And what does he say there in verse 31? He says, now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He doesn't just want people to know truth. He wants people to believe truth. Friends, do you see how amazing this is? John says, my interest in writing the gospel is not simply history or biography, as some scholars say that it is. He says his interest in writing this gospel isn't simply so that you would be smarter and know more as some Christians treat the Bible as if it's a textbook. But he says his interest in writing the gospel is in order to convert our hearts. That's what this Bible is. It's a weapon that changes people. A lot of times we can go to seminary classes or Bible studies like this and we hear a little nugget of truth, a pearl of wisdom, and and it really has an effect on us. And so we put that little pearl, you know, on an index card we put in our Bible, and that's fine. And scripture memory is good. We want to remember those pearls of wisdom. But friends, never believe that the Bible is a string of pearls. It's not a collection of sayings. The Bible from start to finish is a chain of connected thought with the sole purpose of converting you. From Genesis to Revelation, so that you would believe on Jesus Christ. This Bible is the word of God and it's powerful. So number one, he wants us to hear truth. Two, he wants us to believe truth. Thirdly, as we've studied the epistle of John, he wants us to live in that truth. A true and saving faith is not compartmentalized, but it's something that affects every single compartment of our life. But he wants us to live this out boldly in a life lived after Jesus Christ. Now lastly, as we just saw in verse 13, His purpose is for us to be assured in truth. Listen, the entire Bible and the gospel is for you. It's for us. 
is so that we can know God, its purpose for you, it's profitable. But this, but friends, this is specifically for you. He doesn't say, I write this so that you may believe. He says, I'm writing to you who already believe, which includes us in this room. And what is his purpose? That we would have a robust assurance of our salvation because friends it's in that robust assurance of salvation that we experience the fullness of benefits that we have in Christ and that propels us into a bold life lived for Christ as we expand his kingdom in this darkened world now before we get to talk about some of those benefits I want us to understand this though our assurance is important to John he John understands that our assurance is not automatic it's not Um, we struggle with it You know, when you first got married, right, you knew that your wife loved you, you loved your wife. But there was a period of time where you were still putting your best foot forward, right? You were afraid to death for her to figure out how big of a bum you really were, right? I was in a premarital counseling session not too long ago, and uh, I could just tell that these folks, uh, this, this man and this woman, were not just really being intimate with each other in terms of, of communicating to one another. And so I really got down to the, to the nuts and bolts of it and asked the guy, why are you pretending? He goes, I'm just afraid to death she'll find out how big of a jackass I really am. And I turned to the girl and said, hey, he is a jackass. Just go ahead and deal with it. You know? Listen, God loves you. And he will always love you in Christ. But we have a tempter in this world that's really good at tempting you. That tempts you to despair. And what he does is he gets in your ear and he says, you know what, Barton? You are a jackass. And God is done with you. He's headed for the hills. He's through with you. And we experience that sometimes in our hearts, especially when we struggle with sin, that I've, I've, out, I've outpaced God's grace. Every Christian struggles with that. C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis struggled with that. He said he, he very much struggled with despair in his life, the assurance of salvation, reasons, the cares of this world, the spirits of the sage, most notably his tempter. We all have a tempter. But friends, when you experience that, remember the purpose of this letter. Okay, it is a tough letter. It's meant to make us search out our faith with fear and trembling, as Paul commands us to do in Philippians 2. But God's purpose is not for you to despair. It's not for you to be fearful. That's not what God puts in you. That's what Satan puts in you. His purpose is for your faith to be confirmed and for you to be motivated and compelled into a robust life lived for him. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is not a, a textbook. To know, it's not just a string of sayings. (laughs) It is the breathed and living word of God in which we have life and have life confirmed. So as Jesus says, abide in it. Cultivate your assurance so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. His purpose is for us to have a robust assurance of faith. That's the whole reason we're studying this. Now because of this robust faith, this robust assurance, John says when you have that, when you cultivate that, you're able to experience amazing benefits And one of the ways and one of the areas that we experience this benefit to the greatest degree is when we are on our knees before God in prayer. When you have assurance, when you cultivate assurance, it makes makes us bold in our personal prayers of petition. When you cultivate your assurance of faith, of salvation in Jesus Christ, it transforms your prayer life. Uh, There's been many times in my life where I've fallen to a sin or have struggled with a sin, and I've just thought to myself, there's no way God is going to receive me in his presence. They would just be hypocritical of me. All right, so I'm going to go over here, take care of myself, clean myself up, show like a a little season of of proving myself. Then I've earned enough cookies and brownie points to get back into God's presence. We've done that before, right? I remember uh, a couple years ago, my wife, 
And now we got a gift uh, from some of our friends to go watch the Cubs play the Cardinals at Bush Stadium. Um, we're giant Cubs fans, and the Cubs absolutely crushed the Cardinals that day, and it was awesome. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of fun. What was really awesome was that they put us up in a hotel directly across the street from Bush. I mean, it was like five feet. It was just directly across the street. It was amazing. What was even more amazing is we found out that that was the hotel the Cubs players were staying in. And we didn't know that until uh, we came down the next morning and checked out. We were walking through the lobby. And lo and behold, three of my favorite players were right there in the lobby. John Lester, David Ross, and Anthony Rizzo. Y'all might not know who those people are, but to me, they're like, I mean, they should, you know, Mount Rushmore. I mean, they're my heroes. And this was, you know, kid in a candy shop. And I was just over, holy cow, my, my heroes are right here in their pajama pants. I mean, they really were in their pajama pants. And uh, they're just the most approachable beings ever. They're just sitting there hanging out. And I'll never forget this. I froze. <laughs> I got so embarrassed. Sarah goes, Barton, there's Rizzo. <laughs> it embarrassed me because Rizzo looks at us and he's just staring at me. And, and so Sarah, she starts running towards Rizzo to talk to him and to get his autograph. I literally stand behind a column because I'm so ashamed. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't deserve to be in your presence. And I just remember just feeling ridiculous because here's a 24-year-old kid and I'm a pastor and I was intimidated by him. <laughs> so, now what made it really awkward to leave the hotel, I had to walk right past him and as I was walking past him, my hero was laughing at me, right? But I'll never forget that. I had this golden opportunity and I blew it because I was insecure. And I wasted it. And friends, sometimes we can waste opportunity, this, this divine gift that we've been given to go before God and to sit in his presence because we don't think we're worthy. Now, I'll get just, just a second why we are worthy, but friends, we don't understand how worthy we are. And John says, if you understand how assured you are in Christ, it would completely transform your prayer life. You would not hesitate to run before the presence of God and to fall on your knees to talk to Him. Look at, this, look at this attitude he says that we can have in our prayer life with God. He says, one, let's see here. He says, one, we can be confident in our access to God, 14a. If you understand how assured you are in Christ, you can be confident that you have unlimited access to God. Friends, don't think of that lightly. Okay, and prayer is not, a, it's not a, a silly gift. It's not an insignificant gift. I mean, it is a major thing to go before God. Psalm, the psalmist in Psalm chapter 8, he, he, he meditated on how amazing God was, on his holiness, his, his majesty, and his greatness. And he thought to himself, who am I, God, that you should think of little old me? I am unworthy of being in your presence. Going in front of your favorite sports hero, you think that's significant? Going in front of the president, you think that's significant? Going before the king, the queen of England, you think that? Try going before the creator and sustainer of the cosmos, the judge of mankind. People in the Old Testament died for such a thing. You remember in Isaiah when he got caught up in that vision and he caught a glimpse of God's throne room. What did he do? He fell on his face and he said, woe is me. Why? Because he knew that he was not worthy to be in the presence of such greatness. That's why this is incredible, because John says, Christians, you can be confident to go before that very same God. Why? Well, it's not because of you, I assure you, but it's because of Christ in you and what he's accomplished for you. And what has Christ accomplished for you? 
1 John chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus says, or John says that Jesus is the propitiation of our sins, and by this we have come to know the Father. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is a strong safety, and he has intercepted the Father's wrath, and he's completely dealt with your sin problem. He's removed it. Furthermore, he's given you his righteousness. And when we place our faith in him, those things become ours by virtue of our union with Christ. Then you go to places like Hebrews chapter 4, which tells us that Jesus Christ, who is our high priest, that's able to sympathize with us, he is now ascended into heaven and he sits with his father. Then he tells us now we can be confident in approaching the throne of grace. Friends, do you know what that means? It means that the benefit of our union with Christ is not simply that you can go before the Father whenever you want. But it means by virtue of our union in Christ, we are already in the presence of the Father. It means that you are already in his throne room because that's exactly where Christ is. All right, so you're no more out of the throne room than Jesus. You're no less loved by God than Jesus because you are in Jesus. So Christians, when you withdraw from God because you don't think you're worthy, (laughs) you're completely being irrational because you are secured in Christ. He has guaranteed your access to God. The only question is, are you taking advantage of it? You have access to God the Father just as God the Son has. That is yours. That transforms our prayer of life. Secondly, he says that we can be comprehensive in our asking. 14b, he says, ask anything. Here's three years of seminary training. What that means is you can ask anything. It's plain as day. No holds barred. You can ask God whatever you want. What this means is God is not your boss. All of us have a boss, and we understand that we have a few, you know, a limited number of chips, and so we kind of weigh the options. Maybe I shouldn't ask for this because I really want to hold out for that. God is not your boss. He is your Father who delights in blessing you. And so when we're sheepish in our prayer life, we're treating God as if he's a boss. But God is our father, and what John says, because of that, you can be liberal in your prayer life. You can be comprehensive in your asking. Thirdly, he says, we can be expectant that God will act in our asking. There's nothing wrong with us praying over and over again about the same thing, unless we do so because we don't trust God's desire to act on our behalf. Some of us go about our prayer life like we're white-knuckling that thing. You know, we just spew out prayers and anxiety over and over again because we're not sure if God hears us or if he's really going to act on our behalf. I mean, some of us strain so much in our prayer life, we could sprout hair. <laughs> so we, we struggle with this. Does God really hear me? Is he really going to act? John wants you to be so secured and so confident that God is going to answer you. What does he say here? He speaks of our asking as being answered as we ask them. Do you see that? What that that means is that there's no pending when it comes to God. Hearing is the same thing as answering for God. There's no pending. Now, there might be a delay in our experience of his answer, but we should not doubt that our Father in heaven who loves us hears us and answers us. Brothers, do you understand how transformed our prayer life would be if we actually believe those things? Now, I know some of us feel a little uneasy with that. It kind of feels as if that's a license, that God is some sort of genie that we rub to get what we want to make us happy. Friends, praise be to God, that is not what is happening here. In fact, that would be the quickest way for us to be unhappy if God gave us everything that we thought would make us happy. Show me a family where parents just spoiled their kids rotten, gave them everything that those kids desired, and I'll show you a kid today who's extremely unhappy. 
That's not what's happening here. John says there's a key to our asking, a key to our comprehensive asking, a key to God answering our prayers. And this is the key, that we pray in accordance with God's will. Now, this isn't something that we do to manipulate God. We ask him anything we want. We just stick right there on the end, in God, you know, your will be done. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that we do this to change God's mind. That would be frightening if we could change God's mind. But what he's talking about here is taking a posture before God where God changes and bends your will towards his. So John is saying, Christians, you can have a robust prayer life. You can be confident in your prayer life. Pray in accordance with God's will. How do we do that? One, we are submissive in our prayer life. And we're submissive because we trust God. We trust his authority. We trust that he's on a throne, and we trust that his will will ultimately bring us happiness. We saw this in Jesus' own example. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane, which we're about to observe this next week during Holy Week. In his most anxious moment, he prayed that the Father, if it's all possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Why did he pray that? Because he trusted his Father. And this is what he says for us as Christians to do. He says, brothers, I want you to pray this way. What does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does he tell us to pray that way? Because we can trust our Father. And his will is good. And it's in his will we find happiness and satisfaction. Secondly, we pray biblically. James says in chapter 4, verse 3, that sometimes we ask and do not receive because our will is for our own passions and not God's passions. And friends, I just have to believe that sometimes our prayer life is frustrated because our will is in direct competition with God's will. God loves you, and he loves to bless you, but we're sinful. <laughs> and we have oftentimes distorted views of what true blessing is. But God in his grace, he saves you. He implants his word in you. He gives you his spirit, and slowly but surely, over time, he changes your desires, bends your will towards his. And for those of you who are older in the faith, you know that the content of your prayer life today is far different from when you first became a Christian. You know that to be true. No longer do you pray for more things, but what do you pray for? More faith. You don't pray for more comfort or more years in this life. What do you pray for? You pray to be holy. And what John is saying here is as Christians, we will never be more confident as the children of God in the throne of our Father on our knees when we pray in accordance with his will. Why? Because he will answer us. And that's an amazing gift and such a privilege. So one, being assured of our faith makes us bold in our prayers of petition for ourselves. Thirdly, our assurance makes our prayer life other-centered and missional. We see this in verses 16 through 17. I find this amazing that John is boiling down his whole letter. He's talking about the assurance of salvation, the amazing benefits that come from that. And two of his three teaching points have to deal with prayer. <laughs> Friends, that tells us that prayer is extremely important. And what he's talking about here is the power of intercession. All right, this whole letter, he's been calling us to love, to love God more than the things of this world, to love others more than ourselves, especially our brothers and sisters. He says one powerful way that you can do both of those things, to love God and to love your family, is to pray for them. And friends, what that tells us is that we are blessed to be a blessing, not to be self-indulgent. We have been given an amazing blessing of prayer, and we've been given it to be a blessing, not to be self-indulgent. Um, some of y'all have read the book or watched the movie Unbroken. Uh, if you haven't, I encourage you to do it. They're fantastic, but it's about Louis Zamperini. And in the movie, there's this one scene that really grinds my gears. It's when they, uh, 
They first crash in the ocean. There's three of them that survive, including Louis Amperini. Uh, they make it to the top of the water, and they get into a lifeboat. And after the uh, excitement of actually surviving a plane crash wears off, they start to become worried. Say, we're out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> we're, we're stranded, and there's, there's nothing for us to eat. What are we going to do? So they look through their survival pack, and they come to find that they've been blessed with a couple of candy bars. Good news, we have sustenance, and it's delicious sustenance. And so they strategize about how they're going to portion this thing out to make it last. Well, the first night, the soldier who was most terrified, most scared, most disheveled, who, by the way, was in charge of, of kind of gathering all these uh, resources, ate every single one of those candy bars. Now, rightfully so, the next morning, the other guys were a little upset about that. All right? I probably would have killed the guy. I mean, he just ate our only source of sustenance. But the most dramatic scene in that whole overall scene is the, is the look on that man's face when he came to and realized what he had done. He had deprived his friends of blessing by hoarding blessing. And friends, such is the privilege of prayer. God has given us an amazing, powerful weapon with divine power, intercessory prayer. He's entrusted that to you. Peter says that he has formed us to be his kingdom of priests. We are priests of prayer. You're, one of your primary roles as a Christian is to be a prayer warrior. We see that in Scripture. Now, there's nothing wrong with expending that gift on yourself, but if we're only expending it on ourselves, we're missing, we're missing out on the greater purpose of why God entrusted this to you. To bless your brothers and sisters to get on your knees and to bless them. Now, now, how do we primarily do that? Specifically, we pray for each other's holiness. John knows that if we free ourselves from sin, that we walk in obedience, we walk in love, that will bring us joy and God joy. It will make us effective out in the world. It will make us bold as we live out the faith. And Christians, don't, isn't it true that those of us who are satisfied in Christ, who are secured in Christ, living with Christ, and actively engaged in spreading the kingdom of Christ, we have immense joy in our life because we're living in our created design and purpose. We are, we are filled to the brim with joy. We are satisfied. But John says here, now, if you're in that place, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get on your knees and to pray those exact same things for your brothers and sisters who have turned away from Christ and have returned to the vomit of their own sin. Pray those things down on them. Don't throw stones at them. Don't ridicule them. Don't berate them. Don't gossip about them. But immediately go to your father about them and pray for them. They would experience the fullness of life that you enjoy. This is how we bless each other. This is how we serve each other. That we pray the, the blessings of God onto each other. Now, friends, this is, this is convicting to me. One, it, it reveals to me how selfish I am in my own prayer life. But two, it convicts me about the content of my prayers. When we pray for other people, sometimes we fixate on temporal things and completely ignore the eternal things. Oh, Lord, please, please let this person that I care about get that job that he wants. Please let my son or daughter get married. Please, please let my loved one or my friend have long life, there's nothing wrong with those things. We pray those out of a good heart, but we must understand those are the lesser things to pray for. Because think about it, if someone does get married, if someone does get the job that they want, if someone does get into the college they want, if someone does have many years on their life, what is the point if they don't know Christ? What is the point if they're not satisfied in Christ? Because those things, all they are are distractions from their ultimate need if they don't already know Christ.
So he says, brothers and sisters, get on your knees and pray for one another that they may be filled with the fullness of joy that you have in Christ. Now there's that scary little phrase right there, the sin that leads to death. I want to talk about that really quick before we move on. What in the world does that mean? You know, what is, what is he talking about there? That sounds scary, right? I, I saw, uh, I heard of this one Scottish pastor that was preaching on Romans chapter 9, an equally scary passage. And after his sermon, one of his congregants came up to him and said, Pastor, I don't really understand the purpose of Romans 9. What is the application that Paul has for me? And the Scottish pastor took off his glasses. He said, to scare the hell out of you. And sometimes we can come to passages like this, or maybe, you know, John 5, 16, and 17. Maybe his purpose is to scare the hell out of us. Literally the hell out of us. I don't think so. Um, there are many men and scholars that are infinitely wiser than I, and they've come to the conclusion that most definitely what John is talking about here is the rejection of Christ. Okay, it's similar to what Jesus teaches about in uh, Matthew chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Now, no doubt, those two chapters in the gospel and this chapter uh, throughout the ages have terrified Christians, and no doubt they will continue to do so. There's no reason for us to. Because let me assure you, if you're worried whether or not if you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, that's a clear indication that you haven't. Because you have, you won't care that you have. People who outright reject Christ don't care that they've rejected Christ. All right, And it's logical that that leads to death because they've rejected the only remedy to death. And that's what John is talking about here. Now a little caveat, he's not, he's not forbidding you for praying for such people. He's not, he's not saying don't pray for them. But he's simply saying that's not the most important thing. I want you to pray for your family. I want you to pray that they grow in holiness and that they come into the fullness of all the blessings that are theirs in Christ. I want you to pray for these things. Friends, that's how we love each other. So this assurance, it gives us, it gives us a robust faith. It transforms our prayer life for ourselves and it makes us missional in our prayer lives for each other. And thirdly, guys, and lastly, this robust assurance of faith makes us confident in life, okay? As you've read 1 John, he goes to great length to, to convince you about how dangerous this world is. He says this world is filled with antichrists who are teaching false gospels and false Jesuses, all right? There are antichrists out there. He says there's temptation around every corner, things that are desirable to us, then there's the dangers of evil itself that beats uh, against our door. And worst off, this world is under the influence and power of Satan himself. Friends, this is a dangerous place, and we know that to be true. With all the racism, terrorism, and all the isms that we see out in the world, with the anti-evangelical sentiment that's beginning to rise, the fake news industry that's everywhere, thousands of different news sources that are telling us what to believe, what not to believe, corrupt men in power all across the world, the rise of persecution, Christians and, and just people being slaughtered, image bearers all over the place. If you saw what happened in Syria not just a couple of days ago, the gassing. We see evil all over the place. This is a dangerous world. And it's enough to make the most confident men quake in their boots. But John is saying, Christians, you have no reason to shake in your boots like a non-believer. You have every reason to be confident because your confidence is not in yourself, not in your own ability, not in the things of this world. It's not even in the fact that you have faith. But it's in the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ that we have three 
things that if we truly understood and grasped, we would have every reason to be confident out there in the dangerous world. Number one, he says, we know as Christians we are secured. Friends, we have security. Listen, every single human being is a fearful person. We are fearful people as human beings. As kids, you had those nightmares that you suffered from. I can still remember some of the nightmares I struggled with. They still scare the mess out of me today. We have imaginary fears. We have irrational fears. Remember Y2K? When that was happening, the entire world almost shut down because they were scared for numbers on a computer screen. We have actual fears. There is terrorism. There are, be, there are Christians being persecuted all over the world. There is such a thing as, as corporate downsizing, as recession, as loss of job and loss of life. These are real things. We have supernatural threats. The world today, we've always believed that there's supernatural threats as Christians, but friends, one of the great things about postmodernism is that the world actually believes in evil again. And they know that there's darkness out there. And so even the world knows these things, and the world, they're scared to death. You can look at any headline, and you'll see the fear in people. But John says, Christians, you have no reason to be fear, fearful. Because you have the antidote to all of those things. You have Jesus Christ. Friends, there's two things that we must know. That temptation and the power of the devil is stronger than you. If you face those things by yourself, you will fall every single day. They're more powerful than you. But the other thing that you must know is they're not too powerful for Christ. They're not too, there's no reason for you to be afraid. Paul says that you are more than a conqueror. Why? Because you have faith in the one who has conquered those ancient powers of Satan, sin, and death. And what does Jesus say to us in John chapter 6? He says, all that the Father has given me, I will lose not one. You are secured in Christ. And though the world is fearful and they have every reason to be fearful because those are real fears, we have nothing to be afraid of because the worst that this world can throw at us, the worst that Satan can throw at you is simply dying. And Christ has, only, has already conquered the only thing that could ever truly destroy you. You have every reason to be confident. You're secured in Christ. Two, we know that we have belonging. We see this in verse 19. Everyone wants to belong to something. Everyone wants to be bigger, be a part of something that's bigger than themselves. And one of the great delusions out there in the world that non-believers believe is that they're free. You know, they do things, they buy things that make them feel free. Alcohol, drugs, gambling, vacation homes. There's plenty of things in this world that if you have, it will make you feel free, but it's just an illusion. It's not unlike animals in a zoo. You know, you go to a zoo, those animals think they own the place. You know, they think they are on the plains of Africa, but friends, they're in a cage. And what John's saying, there, there is no freedom found in this world. If anything offers you freedom in this world, all that will do will lead you back into slavery. Why? Because there is no such thing as freedom apart from Jesus Christ. And the world is enslaved to the power and the influence of, of the devil. We see this in Isaiah 8, that people actually know that. They know that there's something wrong with the world. It says they, they walk around in darkness, they're blind and they stumble, they, they go to they go to mediums, they go to experts to try to figure things out, but, but nothing really makes sense to them. They know that there's something wrong with the world, and what's wrong with them is that they're alienated from God, and they're blinded by darkness. But what does Paul say for the Christian? He says, you are God's. You are his children. You can call him Abba. You're a member of his family. John tells us for five chapters that we are children of God. 
Paul says in Colossians that Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, rescued us into his sheepfold, into God's family. Jesus himself says that he has gone away to prepare, to prepare for us a, a room in his father's house. Friends, we, we belong to the only thing that's going to last. And we belong to what everybody really wants to belong to. And we have an opportunity to show to them where true freedom is by our confidence that we have in Christ. We have true security. We have true belonging. And friends, we know true truth. That fake news thing is a, is a real deal. You know, all the, <laughs> there's thousands of different outlets out there telling you what to believe, what is true, and what isn't true. And because of that, no one in the world today really believes any authoritative figure. They don't. And on top of that, there's churches, more churches today, more false prophets, more antichrists out there that are teaching false ways to the Father, teaching false gospels. And it's enough to make anybody insecure. But friends, Paul or John is saying that we have every reason to be assured because we know actual truth. What's interesting here in this passage, he's not differentiating the true God from false gods. He's differentiating the God who speaks truth and the idols who speak lies. And he's not saying, you know, Christians, this is all about you understanding more things and figuring out heavy-duty theological formulas. This is relational language here. And he's saying, don't you understand that you are in a relationship with truth? That truth knows you, that you can know truth, that truth loves you, that you can love truth? Don't you understand that you're united to truth? Don't you understand that what John is talking about here is Jesus Christ, the incarnate truth? And we know him. He's given us understanding. He's opened up our light. And our, you are the wisest people in the world because you know true reality. Did you know that? You're the most significant people in the world. You're more significant than kings and queens because you are a truth bearer of God. You know truth. And we have an opportunity to tell the rest of the world about this truth. But, but Christians, you know true reality. You know the, the, the true underpinnings of, of what's going on in life. You know who you are. You know what the purpose of life is. You know God. You know truth. And so because of that, John says, be sure that you immerse yourselves, that you, that you fixate your eyes on the Jesus of Scripture. Because, friends, there's a lot of false gospels out there and there's a lot of imaginary Jesuses out there. False gospels, you know, whatever they might be, uh, uh, license, um, legalism, gospels of culture, you know, the American dream. What John is saying, those, those are false salvation projects. Those are false gospels. They do not lead to freedom. They lead to slavery. There's false Jesuses out there too. The Jesuses of our own imagination. These false teachers were teaching a Jesus created in their own image. And friends, the media has Jesuses made after their own image. And they give us these really sentimental, Oprah-like pictures of Jesus. And it makes us feel good. It gives us the warms and fuzzies. But friends, those aren't Jesus. Those are something less than Jesus. You know the true Jesus, the true Jesus that satisfies you, the true Jesus that secures you, and the true Jesus that's brought you into the family of God. Really quick, I read a story uh, just yesterday about uh, a group of American soldiers in World War II who, in 1945, were on reprieve. They went back to Paris to just to relax, and they realized it was Christmas Eve, and they said, you know what, I'll, let's, let's bless some of these kids. I mean, this is just war-torn countries. So they went to a local orphanage, and they dressed up like Santa. They got all the candy that they could find and toys, and they brought it to this orphanage. 
And they blessed these kids. It was a great thing. But they noticed there's this one girl in the corner who was just scared to death. And they asked the, the nun what was wrong with her. And she said that her parents you know, died in a, a shell in their house a couple of days ago. And so if you can imagine this girl um, in a war-torn country, her life ripped away from her, every reason to be frightful and fearful. So this soldier comes up to her and gets down on his knees and says, sweetie, what can I do for you? <laughs> and, and this is what she said. I want someone to hold me. And so he wrapped her up into his arms. Friends, this is in a dangerous world. And we have every reason, apart from Christ, to be afraid, to feel insecure, to be unsure of ourselves. But don't you realize, in Christ, you are God's kid. And he's got, your, he's got his arms around you. And so when you leave here and you go to work and you go about life, you have every reason to be secured and be assured of your faith because, friends, you know Christ who secures you. You know Christ who brings you into the family of God. And you know truth. You're in relationship with truth. Truth incarnate, Jesus Christ. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this world is beyond us. The powers of this world are greater than we are. But Father, we have no reason to be afraid because we know that in Christ we are more than conquerors. And Lord, I pray that you would well that up within our hearts, that you would snap us back into reality, that we would know who we are. We are royal sons of God, eternally secured in your family. And Father, I pray that would give us clarity about what we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in this world, that we would be your lights and your salt advancing forth the kingdom of grace that other people might know truth. And we pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen.